This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us worship the Lord our God.
will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. Sing praises to the Lord, O you God's faithful ones, and give thanks to God's holy name. Gracious God, you are the healer. You are the one who makes bodies whole, who mends relationships, who binds up broken hearts. Though you often heal through various means, doctors, medicines, surgeries, loving friends, forgiveness, you are still the source of all health and healing. You are the one who defines wholeness and gives it to us as a gift. And so we offer you our thanks and praise. seated. Grace to you and peace from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, to all of you gathered here in this space, and also to everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather together in the name of the Lord. And because it is in God's name that we have gathered, our word of welcome is extended with no qualifiers whatsoever attached to it. All are welcome in God's house, and so all are welcome here. We ask everyone, members and guests alike, to please sign the friendship tab, which you will find on your pew. Please sign it, even if you've been here before, even if you're the only one on your pew, because it is now our only means of contacting you in the event that someone close to you uh, contracts COVID and lets us know. That way we can pass that information along to you, and we will, we will do so in, that, in the event of that case. Uh, but with that being noted, we also hope that you'll join us for a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service, which will take place in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right, down a very short ramp. And there you will find that our deacons have prepared some light refreshments, but most importantly, the chance for us to share in fellowship one another, that we may deepen the ties that bind us together. I'd like to highlight a couple of things from the announcements portion of your bulletin, and one that is not yet in the announcements portion of your bulletin, but will begin occurring soon. So the first is to say, we have an ongoing spring book club. We've met one time, but we have two more meetings on the book, Saving Us, God, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. You don't have to have read the book. We have copies in the church office available for you to take free of charge if you would like to read it. But if you haven't read it, our facilitator, Doug O'Malley, a member of this congregation and director of Environment New Jersey, is a very skilled teacher and will quickly lead us through what we need to have a common conversation together on it. Nor do you need to know what you believe about it necessarily. This can be a time of instruction and learning for us. Hopefully it will be instruction and learning for us all. That is a virtual series, so you'll need to sign up for it. Wednesdays at 7.30, you may do so through the church website. I'd like to highlight something that's not in your bulletin yet, but will begin appearing soon because it's just a few weeks out from now, and that is that we will offer a new members class on May 22nd. That's a Sunday, and we will offer that as an in-person class. Now, we have modified the McCall room such that we are always able now to offer a hybrid option. So whether you are, have been with us for a long time or a short time, or perhaps even if you've only ever been with us online, if you believe that God is calling you to unite with this congregation and ministry, we would love to welcome you into the fellowship that is First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. You may contact me through the church website or through the church office, and I will make sure to put you on that list so that we can keep you apprised of all the details for that class. With all of these things noted, let us continue our worship with the confession of sin. When your soul is suffering in silence, call out to God, who heals our brokenness, who lifts us up from the pit and restores our lives. So let us confess our sin first together and then in silence. O oh Lord, we do not know how to seek you. If we place our trust in worldly ways, we are left comfortless. If we seek to place ourselves in your place, we find your ways inscrutable, 
and our understanding is confused. Our sin obscures our knowledge of your goodness and mercy. Our transgressions cloud our vision of your holiness. It is only because of the love you have for us that we are bold to come before your throne of grace, asking once more that you would forgive us and cleanse us and redirect us. Set our eyes on your ways and our feet on your paths for the sake of Jesus Christ. God's anger lasts but for a moment. God's favor lasts for a lifetime. The Lord forgives our shortcomings and sends deliverance through Christ. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture this re- reading this morning comes to us from the book of Acts, in the ninth chapter, starting with the first verse. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to, began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Our second reading comes to us from John's Gospel, in the 21st chapter. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go out with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in from the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there, with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of God, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he, had, he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, Follow me. There will be a service of choral evensong here in the sanctuary at 4 o'clock today. Now, before we move into our final reading of Scripture, this is what you might call a Christian education public service announcement. There are many revelations in the Bible, but the book that is the last book in the Bible is entitled Revelation. No S on the end. It refers to a specific vision given to John on the island of Patmos much later, and near the end of his life, it is Revelation because there is just one vision encountered, encountered in Revelation, from which we will take our final lesson from the fifth chapter reading beginning at the 11th verse and continuing through the 14th. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing, to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Do you often think of what it means to make a Christian witness? I was thinking about that this week, and my eye wandered over to the bookshelves in my study, and there are a lot of bookshelves, and there are a lot of books on them, and I began musing about their contents, specifically which authors of the thousand or so books on my shelves would be known by this congregation in the absence of my citing them. It seemed to me that outside of the authors that I most often cite, a great many of the names of those folk don't get a lot of recognition outside of the occasional sermon, no matter how illustrious their scholarship. But a handful practically leapt off the shelf at me for their significance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, martyred by the Nazis. Karl Barth, author of the Barman Declaration, also persecuted by the Nazis. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who faced the possibility of assassination every day of his life for years because of his leadership against apartheid. Martin Luther, whose leadership of the Protestant Reformation could have cost him his life, and Martin Luther King, whose leadership of the Civil Rights Movement did. John Calvin, a parish pastor who had the distinction of serving the same church twice, before and after they ran him out of town for his beliefs about Scripture and the church. And what's more, the church for a long time has privileged the voices of men, but perhaps you have heard of Sophie Scholl, only 21 years old when she was executed by the Nazis, or Katharina von Bora, who as much as Martin Luther risked his life for the Reformation, she risked hers alongside him. And there are so many more. It seemed to me the people of significance, the people whose witness we remember are the people whose witness was costly. The people whose witness demanded of them their life or their security. And for that we remember them. Bearing witness can be very frightening. I have to assume that was the case for Ananias Given the task of going to Saul, who had been breathing threats and murder against the Christians, Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. Now, roll that over in your mind for just a minute. The Lord speaks to Ananias in a vision, and his reply is, I'd really rather not. He's known to be mean, and he's locking people up. But the Lord says, go anyway. That's a paraphrase, but that's what God said. Bearing witness can be costly. It can cost our security. In some instances, it costs our lives. It can be terrifying, and with all of that acknowledged, let me put this plainly. Christians are called to bear witness. Unfortunately, the notion of what constitutes Christian witness seems in these days to be getting distorted. Christian faith is far too often being cited as a justification for discrimination in the modern era. Let me say this, when witness looks militant, 
or when the cost of one's witness is borne by another, one need look very carefully at that witness and ask if it is truly Christ-like. One of the things I hope you know about me by now is that I don't believe for a second that you have to agree with me politically or even theologically for me to know that you are a person of deep faith. It is a point of some pride to me that I have friends all along the ideological spectrum with whom I can disagree fervently and still remain friends. Well, I had lunch a while back with one such friend of mine, and the topic of social justice came up. And now, from my perspective, social justice is a huge part of what it means to offer a Christian witness. But she said to me, can we please find a different term other than social justice? I'm becoming allergic to the phrase, because every time I hear it, it is being used to justify only one approach to problem-solving. And I know that I am working for justice, too, even if in a different way. And she concluded, if the term becomes too narrow, it's meaningless. Now, I don't think of the term in that way at all. But because she is my friend, I felt a commitment to consider her point of view. And I've always known her to be a deeply generous person. And as I was considering her point of view, I came across a blog written by a pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina, a Lutheran pastor, and he wrote, but I also know that, at least in some ways, social justice can be talked about as a savior in some instances, and that's just not scriptural. It's evidence of the Savior's work. It's the call of the Savior. But social justice is not Jesus. It's easy to fall into that rabbit hole, though, especially when Jesus is largely thought to be assumed in the church's work. Well, I was intrigued at this point by his, his line of thinking. He went on, We need Jesus along with justice, people. We don't need exclusive social justice, but rather social Jesus. We need growth in faith while also being invited to act on that faith in real, tangible, life-changing, system-changing, world-changing ways. We need that Jesus who speaks to our inner faith and discipleship growth as well as calls us out of our comfort zones to engage the world. He concludes, social Jesus. I might just trademark that. I thought about it. I love that. The corrective to the risk of our political identities overwhelming our Christian identity is instead to be hung up on the person of Jesus Christ. The corrective of privileging our own bias, and we all have our own bias, is to privilege instead the bias of Jesus Christ. Because you and I are called to bear a personal witness to Jesus Christ. Yes, we witness together corporately, but let me repeat this. You and I are called to bear a personal witness to Jesus Christ. We can't get around that. It is the heart of Christian discipleship. It is the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as one of the truest saints I have known in my life liked to say, we are not so much saved from as we are saved for. We are saved for the witness to God's redeeming work in the world. If you follow the story of the Bible from start to finish, the narrative plot of the Bible that works its way from Genesis all the way to Revelation is that God is calling out from creation particular people, the Israelites first, and then later we Christians are grafted into that work 
to the witness of the saving, redeeming work of God in the world, first made known to humankind and the people of Israel, and then in the person of Jesus Christ. We are called as witnesses to these things. Indeed, in the book of Revelation, John, traditionally assumed to be the same apostle who wrote the gospel and then later the letters of John, is given a vision as a very old man living in a cave on the island of Patmos. It is a sweeping vision of the inevitable victory of God over evil and sin. Now, <clears throat> Revelation has traditionally been taught as having been written in a particular style, it's called apocalyptic, so that it could provide hope to an oppressed people. But Brian Blunt, one of the finest New Testament scholars of our time, notes that the time of the writing of Revelation, generally assumed to be around the year 90, actually falls in the reign of Domitian, during which there was no whole-scale persecution of Christians. And Brian writes, the evidence suggests that John was writing about the expectation of persecution rather than the present experience of persecution. The problem lay with the imminent conflict he knew would erupt if his hearers and his readers lived out the kind of non-accommodating Christianity that he himself professed. He was concerned primarily about the claims of lordship declared by Rome and Caesar. Resisting those demands would invite trouble. Trouble, however, had apparently not yet arisen. So, Revelation wasn't written to an oppressed community after all. Rather, it was written to a community that was not oppressed at all, precisely because they had figured out how not to give a witness. And in fact, they had figured out, in Brian's estimation, how not to give a witness precisely to avoid the type of witness that costs something. It leads Dr. Blunt to the conclusion if John was indeed asking his people to stand up and stand out in a world that they had accepted, a world that accepted them, he was essentially telling them to go out and pick a fight. He was ordering them to declare that they were now non-accommodating Christians who could no longer participate in a world that had not really noticed them because they had heretofore been accommodating to it. In a classic don't ask, don't tell that I'm a Christian kind of environment, John was essentially ordering his Christians to be about the business of telling on themselves. And I would interject, and for those who would witness at the expense of others, this is key, telling on themselves with the full knowledge of the kind of repercussions that such telling would bring. In other words... John is challenging Christians who have it easy with the words, Can I get a witness? John wants his Christians not to be so much meek lambs as he wants them to be willing to risk a public faith that could be costly to them. And remember, if your public witness is costly to others, but not to you, it should necessarily be questioned. <clears throat> witness, if it is any kind of witness at all, risks those things that we value, security, the life we have, some cases perceptions that we would rather not relinquish. It is costly, because anything else would be cheap. And cheap grace is the imposter of the free grace of God because it is grace that demands no change from us. That's what makes it cheap. 
Peter Marty tells the story of Larry Trapp, Grand Dragon of the Nebraska Ku Klux Klan. In the late 1980s and early 90s, Larry Trapp took great joy in harassing Jewish people, immigrants, and people of color. He made threatening phone calls, sent out hate mail, and encouraged his followers to commit acts of violence against non-white and Jewish people. But Larry Trapp made a mistake when he picked on Michael and Julie Weissner in his hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska. Michael was the cantor of the local synagogue, and Trapp let loose on Michael with a string of nasty words over the phone. You'll be sorry you ever moved into that house. The KKK is watching you. At first, the Weissners installed a security system. Then one day they realized that fear and intimidation from these escalating threats were consuming them. So what do you do when a racist becomes hell-bent on destroying you? Well, you could try the unconventional approach of loving that individual. This became Michael Weissner's aim. He began calling Larry Trapp's house. Each time, he would have to listen to a 10-minute recording on white supremacy before he could even leave a message. But Weissner kept leaving messages that were frank yet loving, telling Trapp in different ways that hatred is no way to live. One time, Larry Trapp picked up the phone. That's when Weissner learned that he was disabled, a diabetic with both legs amputated. In a stunning offer of friendship, Michael Weissner offered to take Larry Trapp to the supermarket for groceries. Eventually, and it took a while, Michael and Julie were permitted to pay a visit to Larry Trapp's house. They found a monster in this unkempt house stuffed with racist literature. Here was a bully in a wheelchair with a sawed-off shotgun by his side. He had trained himself in the use of explosives. When the couple first met Larry, Michael shook his hand, and all three of them started to cry. They talked for a couple of hours. Larry asked them to take down his Nazi flag. The Weissners paid regular visits after that, delivering groceries and assisting with house cleaning. And when the doctors informed Larry that he had no more, perhaps, than another year to live, medically speaking, the Weissners took Larry Trapp into their own home. Julie gave up her job as a physician's assistant to care for him. And Larry Trapp ended up converting to Judaism. He renounced the horrors of racism. And catch this. He made a point of phoning every person he had ever harassed and apologizing to them. Ten months after moving in with the Weissners, Larry Trapp died. Some of the African-American victims of his hatred spoke fondly of him at his memorial service. Michael Weissner delivered the eulogy for this bigot-turned-family member, and in that eulogy, Michael Weissner referred to him as Brother Larry, two of the sweetest words Lincoln, Nebraska has ever heard. We are to witness to the transforming, redeeming power of God, even if it invites trouble. Maybe especially if it invites trouble. That's it. It's as simple and as hard as that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
let us together proclaim what we believe in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one God, it is Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one Catholic, Catholic and Apostolic Church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the Lord to come. Amen. You may be seated. Humbled by God's generosity, let us offer our gifts to God and Christ Church.
of grace, your grace demands a response from us. And that response will often start with and be sustained by prayer. So we turn to you now with our prayers for our world, for countries torn apart by war and violence, for refugees and those persecuted, for places with famines or recovering from natural disasters. We pray for our country and for our city, for those who suffer from gun violence, for those who feel divided from family and friends, for our leaders, both those named and elected as such, and those who lead through who they are and how they live each day. We pray for those we love, our family and friends, especially those who need your healing hand in their lives, who suffer in body, mind, or soul. Be with those who feel anxious about any aspect of their lives. And we pray for ourselves, for all of the things that we have prayed for for others, and also that we might be willing to take risks as we witness to you. Help us to continue to grow in our discipleship journey every day of our lives. Surrounded by your grace, we pray these things along with the prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
as I was looking through the bookshelves, I came across one, which was a series of biographies of uh, figures from literature who had deep Christian faith and had influenced their writing. The title of that biography, more important than, than the contents of it, was this. The life you save may be your own. And that is the heart of Christian witness. Because in the end, what we do changes us as much as anyone. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.